This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR if you haven't worked it out. I'm Dr. Shane, and we have a massive show for you today. We have got guests talking about everything ranging from artificial jawbones to lakes in the middle of Australia to the Pluto New Horizons mission, and one of the people involved in that will be uh, talking to us in a little while. We have a great team in the studio, though. We've got uh, Dr. Catherine. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to have you back from all your ski trips. Thank you. It's nice to be back. It's always hard to come home after a holiday, though, <laughs> but, um, but I am back and back at work and happy to be here. I was tempted to unfriend you at one point. I was just sick of seeing all these scenic pictures of you, you know, sloping it out, doing all this stuff. Yes, it's not fair on Facebook, really, to put photos up when everyone else is, is back in Melbourne at work. It's, it's not. Dr. Crystal? Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Yeah, I am. Do you mean you get through all the uh, construction near the studio this morning? Oh, East Brunswick is alive with infrastructure work. It certainly, <laughs> it certainly is. It's been alive with infrastructure work for some months now. Mm. Isn't it great to get improvements to our public transport system? Indeed. Um, Yes, we need those at the moment, I think. Yes. Uh, now, folks, uh, we're going to jump into some news. Before that, though, I'm just going to let you know that uh, I'm not playing normal music today. It's going to be a bit of a tribute show to James Horner, who, if you didn't hear, was one of the greatest composers of uh, the last, well, this century and the last one. Um, he died in a light plane crash uh, during the week, which was very, very sad, and I'm sure he had a lot of music in him. And no, I will not be playing the theme to Titanic. Do not fear. Do not change the channel. <laughs> But we will play some of his other music, which has been fantastic. But let's jump into some news for you. Uh, Dr. Catherine, we'll start with you. Thanks, Dr. Shane. There was some really interesting research released this week online in the journal Neurology. And this research was showing some interesting uh, facts that we can see very early signs of Alzheimer's disease a long time before the, the disease is actually diagnosed. Oh. So this, this study looked at over 2,000 people who were over 65 years of age but did not have Alzheimer's or dementia. And these individuals underwent a range of cognitive tests, including tests of their memory, uh, general orientation, executive function, and sort of global cognition. And then the researchers followed up these 2,000 individuals for 18 years. And they went through these tests at regular intervals over that 18 mm -hmm. years. Wow, that's a really long study. It's a very big and long study, yes. And it, Just you wouldn't fund that in Australia. No, unfortunately. No. That's one of those things where you think people have to be funded for a protracted period for that sort of work. Yeah, and this is a very in-depth sort of study, so it would be very expensive to run, but really mm. important because the findings are really significant. So in that cohort, 21% of the cohort ended up being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease oh. over the 18-year period. And the interesting results are that there was a strong association between the people who performed poorly on those cognitive tests, even 18 years prior, to those who actually ended up um, developing Alzheimer's disease. So what we know from this, it means that... Um, now, the tests are not sensitive enough to detect people who will go on to develop, but there's certainly a strong association there that even subtle changes in cognition occur well before the actual clinical phase mm. of Alzheimer's. I mean, what, what sort of 
cognition changes are we talking about though is it so the i mean because we all have those things as we grow older you know you forget something i can't remember a name i'm personally hopeless with faces you know well i remember faces i just don't remember the names attached to them but that's not the sort of thing we're talking about here is it no there are normal age-related cognitive changes mm. and, and that's normal and things like you're, you're saying dr shane if you forget to pay a bill or, or you forget someone's name they're quite normal yeah. the thing that sets dementia or alzheimer's aside from that is sort of sustained regular problems with cognitive cognition and memory so um and and problems with cognition that actually interfere on in your daily life mm. so to the point where you may not be able to even function at home because you can't remember if you've turned a kettle on um put turn the stove on those sort of things that become dangerous so it's more those sustained changes in dementia as opposed to the normal age related ones where right. they sort of that, that we all experience a, a Jeez, lapse in memory you, you kind of want to be in that trial don't you i mean it'd be great to be part of a trial like that so you you have some foresight or at least have some idea of whether or not your cognition is changing because we don't regularly test our cognition levels on a on a sort of year by year basis i mean you kind of remember what they were years ago but it's very hard to compare yeah, and you yourself. learn so much more as you grow older, mm. so to, to track that over time. And it's, re- it's really hard to get objective um, understanding of cognition as well yeah. and map that out. I, I know one of the things that worries me is I, um, I'm i one of those people who's a little bit... Uh, I, I may go and switch a light on more than once, you know, that kind of stuff. But as I'm getting older, I'm doing that less and less. It's like a, I'm not sure if I'm becoming you know less... My memory's dropping off, and I'm 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 not double checking everything anymore, or be- I'm just becoming more zen, You're more confident. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, one of the uh, most recent studies I saw suggested that cognitive decline begins in your thirties, wow. and that your peak cognition is is in your twenties. Damn it! So, uh, <laughs> oh well, yeah, lives lives. She's just you know punching the air there because she's heading towards peak cognition. She's not there yet. But it do- it really does um, emphasise the need for early intervention. Absolutely. Yes. I mean that the potential if we knew. 18 years prior to mm. a condition actually really that the clinical onset if, the, the pot- potential to progress that um, the disease progression is really great mm. well, it's good stuff because yeah. well, it's such a, a debilitating um, condition for patients and families and friends it's extraordinarily bad so the more we know the better dr crystal this week, uh, researchers at the University of Melbourne have had uh, breakthrough. I hate the word breakthrough. I won't use that. <laughs> <laughs> researchers at the University of Melbourne have unlocked the blowfly genome. Oh, the uh, <laughs> the blowfly is a uh, the Aussie blowfly is a, is a pest that causes amazing damage in our sheep and wool industry mm. because uh, blowflies uh, lay their um, eggs and their little larvae uh, invade and 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 live inside the sheep of skin. It's a, it's a pretty disgusting. nasty and disgusting disease, mm. um, which causes a lot of, of death and damage to to our sheep, um, which then goes on to affect you know our, our very large uh, wool and uh, and uh, meat industry mm. and. So so uh, sequencing the genome of the blowfly has revealed that it has around 14,500 genes. But what's really interesting is that about 2,000 of those are unique. And so they've never seen genes that look like this before, which may hold some insight into how best to fight a fly strike, which is the disease that yep. these blowflies cause. Because um, the flies are notoriously resistant to uh, insecticides. So they're currently the only real way of treating sheep. I don't know if you've seen um, on, a, on a sheep station, you can kind of uh, they get all these chemical kind of soaking mm. or, or, you know, really physical um, procedures like docking and dagging and, and cutting bits of the yep. sheep off, basically, so to prevent blowflies from laying their eggs on them. 
And so, um, so if we can come up with more targeted, effective uh, treatments or even a vaccine um, uh, against mm. this parasite, this blowfly, um, then it may be a great way to um, help our sheep and wool industry here in Australia. And I think the other thing that was really interesting for me is that, that some of this re- research um, done by the team at the University of Melbourne was in conjunction with the Baylor College of Medicine. And um, what they're looking at doing is actually doing a genome analysis for 5,000 insect species that are of medical, scientific, agricultural and economic importance. So picking 5,000 wow. insects and going, actually, these are really important. So we're talking about, you know, we've made some progress with mosquitoes because mosquitoes transmit a lot of human diseases. Mm. There's also a lot of weevils and beetles and bugs that, again, are uh, of agricultural or farming importance, They're, you know. Um, but I think there's, you know, if there's a list of 5,000 out there, let's get cracking and find yeah. out what's going on. I'm sick of using my hand on blowflies, the Aussie blowfly. <laughs> I mean, they're slow. They are slow. Yeah, they're, I mean, like a, they're pretty dumb. Yeah, they're <laughs> pretty dumb. <laughs> Their genes are obviously quite smart if they can evolve uh, resistance yeah. to insecticides. So well, you, uh, you, you look at animals like that too, or insect, insects, but they, um, you know, they've evolved to such a point where they are so effective. Mm. I mean, they are actually really good at doing what they do, and unfortunately, we're not that good at stopping them. So, well, one of the really th- interesting things is that these these flies have a really strong sense. They have a really um, amazing sense of smell. Oh, really? And they almost suggest that they. They can almost smell which sheep are resistant to them and which aren't. It's I don't know. They, they think that the, the, the sense of smell is really enhanced in these flies. So I think there's some genetic pathways that we can uh, unlock yeah. there, which then also might be really relevant um, to, to other species because, yep. you know, flies, like Drosophila flies, a lot of the um, genes that are discovered in Drosophila are then found to be, you know, there's, there's related genes in humans mm-hmm. that have, you know, opened up huge um, insights into how our genes work. So maybe if we can find out a bit more about these unique uh, blowfly genes, particularly around things like sense of smell, that might actually mm. translate into something of um, medical importance for humans. Mm. And it's a great way, sense of smell is a great way to drag them into traps and, and so forth and, you know, stop them going where they want to go but send them elsewhere um, because you can sort of direct them before they get there. Mm. You know, so there's a lot of good options there. Thank you, Dr. Crystal. Um, now, for those of you out there who are, you know, closet Star Trek fans <laughs> or out there Star Trek fan like me, um, the uh, speaking of out there stuff, good news from America Gay marriage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you did, guys I mean, are looking at me blankly. Oh, I was thinking about thinking, Star I, Trek. Yeah. I was just thinking, did I dream it? Um, <laughs> just, just make some George Takai kind of leap there yeah, from Star yeah, well, Trek to gay marriage. Like, it's just like, okay, yeah, I can follow that train of thought. I opened up my Facebook uh, and it's just blasted yeah. with rainbows. I yes, did the I've same after work yesterday. I didn't know what had happened. All of Facebook all of a sudden mm. was... Uh, Covered by rainbow, it's great yeah. news. Well, I, I just call it um, treating your fellow humans with respect. Love. That's kind of the umbrella it falls under for love me. Love is love. Anyway, um, good stuff. Uh, you know, maybe it'll happen in uh, the southern parts of the planet. You never know. Could do. Anyway, back to Star Trek for a second. Um, you know, we all remember the tricorder, you know, that Dr. McCoy used in the old 60s episodes where you had this little thing. You know, iPad ripped it off. Um, <laughs> kind of stuff. But um, the the reality was this was a, an object that could detect problems in a patient without touching them. So it was a, a scanner of types that could scan a patient very quickly and determine things. Now, uh, the company Qualcomm has put up a an X Prize, one of these you know big prizes for innovation, the Tricorder X Prize, which is worth um, I think it's worth ten million for first. Um, sorry, seven. It's ten million all up, so it's seven million for first place, two million for second place, and one million for third place. Basically, to any companies that can produce something akin to a Tricorder. Now, there's certain rules. Um, it must be sort of consumable. 
um, to the average person, not consumable as in edible, but usable to a consumer. So you need to be able to use it similar to a phone or something there. So it can't be too complicated. And it needs to be able to test for up to 24 different ailments. So it's got to do it quick. Does it specify what those 24 are? Uh, yeah, they've got a list of uh, things that you have to diagnose on the spot. And so there's Completely a range non-invasively. of... non-invasively? Non-invasively. So, and there's a range of techniques um, that people are using. So some of them are using fluids. Some of them, they'll actually want, you know, a, a blood sample. Some of them are urine-based and so forth. And you know, so so that's know. not completely non-invasive. Yeah, I was thinking urine, urine-based too. You know, I mean, that's kind of um, not necessarily convenient on the spot <laughs> but um but not so bad but yeah but some of them but then you can get very small amounts of um blood and you know you're using you know microliters of blood here very similar dr crystal is waving a finger at me that people would use in terms of testing diabetes um insulin levels and so forth um they're very common and anyway so there's a range of um there's eight uh, companies that are in the the sort of shortlist for this now and they're, and they're working on, on producing this prize and over the next few weeks they will be um, demonstrating their various technologies. So. I, think, I think that point of care technology is really going to revolutionise health because um, mm. a lot of our health bills at the moment are around the cost of hospitals. If you mm. can move diagnosis out of those yep. large traditional settings and move them into the hands of, um, of uh, decentralised doctors and you know where, where, where patients are, I think yep. it can, it's going to absolutely change medicine. And the real mindset there is that we've had a, a medical system that is based on the idea of you come to me because you have symptoms. What we need is a medical system based on determining you have something wrong with you before you're symptomatic, because that's the way you will, you know, address people's health. I mean, if you have to, you know, the old, you know, oh, I'm sore. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's kind of happened by that stage. But if you can work these things out before people become symptomatic, then you've got a much better chance of treating them effectively and them never actually showing symptoms or, or the sorts of things that would lead to them being in hospital. So it's it's really interesting. It's great. I, I love the fact, you know, it's like with the XPRIZE around, um, you know, launches of commercial space um, flights and so forth. It's had led to so much in terms of um, that industry. It's really driven that industry. And one of the things that the, um, the, the guys running this have said, of course, is that they suspect that the end game here will not be that, you know, whoever wins first will be the, the product that goes to market. It will be that, you know, the first place getter and the third and maybe the fifth place getter will say, you know what, if we drag our bits together, we've actually got something pretty good here. But individually, they're a bit ho-hum. So, oh, that happens with boy bands on The Voice all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, can, I can see how. But I, I love the aspiration and the, and, the, and the challenge leading to innovation. I Absolutely. Think it challenges us to, to do more. I think it's going to be very cool. Free triple R. Now, uh, we should have on the phone, I do hope, Anne Verbisher from the Department of Astronomy in the University of Virginia. Anne, are you there? Can you hear us? Yes, I can. It's great to be here. Uh, fabulous. Now, you're down in Tasmania at the moment, aren't you? Is that right? Yes, I am. I am down here waiting for uh, Pluto's shadow to pass over us on Monday night. Awesome. Now, let's get to that in a moment. First of all, um, we need to talk about where we actually are at this point in time with the New Horizons uh, probe. It's, it's obviously on approach, but there, there must be a number of things happening as we, um, we move towards Pluto, Pluto with this, this craft right now. People must be pretty excited and pretty nervous. They are very excited. The excitement, I think, is building at every every day, and every new image that we see, more and more detail uh, keeps popping up on on Pluto and its its large moon Charon. Um, one of the critical things that is happening right now, though, is the um, I've been working with the New Horizons Hazard team, 
and they are assessing the images to um, look for new, any un yet undiscovered moons of, of Pluto that could pose a um, safety risk to the spacecraft as it approaches uh, uh, the whole system. Um, so those images are being analyzed very carefully, and uh, because the decision um, needs to be made very soon to do any alteration in the trajectory of the spacecraft that, that could change the mission dramatically if they were to find anything. Um, and that change need, in course need, would need to happen this week. So that's coming up very, very soon. Mm. And what, what kind of delay time are we talking about? Is it about um, nine, ten minutes to get informa information to and from the spacecraft at this point? No, quite a bit longer than that. The information mm. to and from the spacecraft would take, uh, the round trip would be about eight hours. Oh, wow. Okay. I was yeah. way off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Four Jeez. hours one way. Wow. So, so you, you, you really have to, uh, I mean, in terms of course corrections, you don't have a lot of room to move there, do you? Um, no, not really. That That's all very, um, everything is all planned out. It's essentially, um, you know, execute a series of commands that, that would, would change things. So um, mm. those those things are all very very predetermined, and it's just that the decision needs to be made, you know, go, no go, that kind of thing. Yep. Now, you were involved a lot with the Cassini mission, and I can imagine that this might have been a bit of a sort of a, a relaxed environment compared to the Pluto mission, because with Cassini, you enter into orbit of the planet, whereas with the New Horizons craft, it is not entering orbit. So what's the difference between those two scenarios in terms of what has to be done? I think you you, you hit the nail on the head precisely. It is, they're two very, very different missions with um, a flyby going um, so fast with Pluto. Um, and then Cassini, you're at, it's almost like you have a leisurely pace, right? Mm. You've entered orbit around the, the planet and we've been there um, for 13 years, or will be there for 13 yeah. years. We're just past the 11-year uh, mark. Um, I'm coming right up on it. Uh, so things are much, much more relaxed in a sense because you have lots of time to observe and the observations are very long. You look at a moon for, oh, sometimes as long as six hours at a time. And that's mm. just unimaginable for a mission like New Horizons flying through the Pluto system. Everything is going to be very fast and very quick. And since it's so far away and the light travel time is, is enormous, um, everything has to be pre-programmed and, and planned well in advance. So, so in terms of just talk us through the, the way the um, the craft actually works, because I know I was I was driving down um, Lake Mountain uh, here in Victoria last week, and we you know I spotted this kangaroo on the side of the road, and I said to my son, you know, hey, there's a kangaroo, and by the time he looked up, we were we were past it. Um, is is this a similar scenario with the, the cameras and so forth on the craft? I mean, how do you know they're pointing in the right direction? That's a very good question. Um, a lot of this mission was planned well in advance, and um, in advance of even even some of the moons of Pluto being discovered, there were two very small moons that were only recently discovered, and the mission plans had already been set in place and made, so those kinds of add-ons were kind of hard, hard to fit in. They did leave some gaps and holes um, in the plan and in the timeline for, for just that situation, but... Um, Really, the main the main plan and the main science is going to be concentrated on Pluto and Charon, um, and somewhat smaller moons because they were discovered later, and hard to, it's kind of hard to fit in. Um, everything because just like you said you're, you're going so fast and and 
and before you know it, you're going to be past it and and miss something. So mm. I, I could go into orbit around Pluto, but unfortunately not. Yeah. Hi, it's uh, Dr. Crystal here. I was just wondering, um, a lot of our uh, planets in the outer uh, solar system have rings or, or dust going around them. Do we know much about that in the context of Pluto? That is precisely what we're looking for in these hazard assessments, because um, in other um, planetary systems, in particular the Saturn system, which has a beautiful set of rings, and many of those rings are generated by small moons, um, little collisions with tiny moons that are within them. So that is the main concern um, with the Pluto system, that undiscovered tiny moons could be generating a, a ring around Pluto that we don't know about yet, and the spacecraft could... Um, be jeopardized by um, coming into contact with just the tiniest of one of those particles. It's moving so fast, it would just tear through the spacecraft and destroy it, potentially. So that's why we want to know about those things in advance as much as possible. Fortunately, though, uh, the images are showing that there, there isn't anything. Um, there are so, no- so far, so good. Yeah, so definitely. So far, so good. So no alterations to the to the plan, and um, the images should be as we expected. So this is going to be thrilling. Mm. And you mentioned earlier uh, you're down there waiting for the time when the craft actually passes through the shadow um, that Pluto casts from the sun. Um, tell us a bit about why that's so important. What do we learn if if we actually get that right? What this is, what we're, what we're observing down here in Tasmania is actually just a, a coincidentally <laughs> um, perfect alignment between Pluto and another star. So Pluto is just going to pass in front of a star, and the um, light from that star is going to be blocked out by Pluto. And so essentially Pluto's shadow is cast on the Earth and um, is going to pass through, the predictions are, it's going, the shadow of Pluto is going to pass over Tasmania and New Zealand as well. Um, so we want to have telescopes positioned wherever the weather is clear, which means a lot of telescopes in a lot of places to, to um, increase your odds of being able to mm. observe it. Mm. Um, and as, as that starlight is blocked out, we can learn about um, Pluto's atmosphere, what its um, hazes are, are like and where they are located on the, on the uh, planet, what the atmospheric density is um, at the time. And this is just really incredible that, the, that, the, that this happens. It really has nothing to do with the New Horizons flyby at all, other than the coincidence that this is happening three weeks before the spacecraft flies by mm. um, the now- whole system. Now we we were I, you know we spoke uh, about an hour ago just to make sure this phone line was going to work, um, and we were talking about our recollections of the original Voyager one and two craft and how we we saw on relatively crappy televisions I would say those amazing images of the other planets. I mean, how much different is the data going to be this time round? We have definitely made improvements in our, our technology since, mm. since then and so, since those cameras were flown. And those, those literally were um, television cameras. We have yeah. CC, CCD instruments now, which are much, much better quality um, than we had in Voyager. But it takes so long to get a space mission put together and instruments to be built and, and, and qualified for space flight that 
you're always flying with technology that's probably a, a decade behind what, what you you know what you have right now. Your capability in your own iPhone is is better than what what is on board the the New Horizons spacecraft. But mm. that's the that's the way it is. And the and the solar system is huge. It takes a long long time to get out to a place like Pluto. So there again, time is time is not on your side. Your technology is going to advance. Um, Mm. Quite quickly. I think most of us would be pretty happy with a good picture of Pluto from a 10-year-old camera, though. I think uh, that wouldn't be a bad outcome if we get that. No, not at all. We will be very, very satisfied. <laughs> so um, New Horizons uh, will do a flyby plus past, flu- past Pluto. Where is it flying by to? Where, what happens? I mean, it, it's incredibly exciting that in 16 days' time we're going to get this look at Pluto, but then what? then what? Yes, I'm also working with the what's called the New Horizons Kuiper Belt Object Team. So this mission always had as, as its goal, in fact, I think that the official title of the mission is the New Horizons uh, Mission to Pluto and the Kuiper Belt. So Pluto is the largest object in um, a region of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt that's um, somewhat analogous to the main asteroid belt that lies between Mars and, and Jupiter. And Pluto just happens to be the, the biggest object in this, in this uh, population of icy bodies that are way, way out there. So Pluto is head, or sorry, New Horizons, the spacecraft, is headed out toward this uh, region where there are many, many objects, hundreds of thousands of them. And the idea was that the spacecraft is going to have a close flyby of, of one of those and see what it looks like, too. Um, we have no idea what, what one of these bodies uh, is going to look like. And they're much, much smaller than Pluto, of course. So... Um, in 2010, a ground-based search was was initiated to try and find a target. Um, the spacecraft does have enough fuel on board to alter its trajectory to to head to one of these objects, but it's not an infinite amount. So, there, when the mission was launched and planned, there were no known targets within its um, fuel budget that it could actually get to. So they started looking with ground-based telescopes to try and find something and using the largest telescopes in the world to do a a survey to find one of these um, small icy bodies, and nothing turned up. It just was not successful. It found lots of icy bodies, but none of them within the, the reach of the fuel that New Horizons has on board. So in 2014, just last year, they enlisted the help of the Hubble Space Telescope to conduct the search for the next New Horizons target. And fortunately, Hubble um, not found not only one or two, but at the time of the announcement, three objects that New Horizons could reach. But further observations eliminated one of those pretty, pretty quickly. So right now we have two objects that New Horizons can reach. Um, but as I said before, the outer solar system is very, the solar system is very, very large, and it's going to take a while to get there. And it will fly by one of these objects in early 2019. So well, <laughs> we'll wait a few more years. We're not getting <laughs> any younger. Right, right. Look, and so it's. Um, we do have a destination. That's great. It's fantastic. Look, and so, thank you so much for talking to us. And, and look, good luck. I mean, not just yourself, but for everyone watching this, I think it is incredible exciting time um, in terms of exploring the, the outer sort of reaches of our solar system in, the, in what is no doubt going to be 
an incredibly complex system, the Pluto system, with, you know, we know of at least five moons. So um, I hope it goes well. Good luck with your observations down there in Tasmania, and I hope you enjoy the, uh, you know, best food in the world down there, I have to say. So good luck with that. Um, well, thanks so much. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and thanks for chatting to us, and, and we'll be watching keenly uh, over the coming weeks on our program and reporting the results, and uh, hopefully it will be an extraordinary success. So, Anne Berbisher, thank you very much for chatting to us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. That was Anne Berbisher, who's a research associate professor in the Department of Astronomy at the University of Virginia, and she's actually uh, been spending a lot of her time in Boulder, Colorado, um, over recent months, but heading back to Virginia soon, and is currently working down there, as she said, in Tasmania. So, um, interesting I, stuff. I wonder if any, if she or anyone on the team is going to get any sleep that you know you know that that day before. Like, just is it is it still there? Is it? I don't think I'll get any sleep. <laughs> it's so exciting. I mean, uh, they had to great. launch this thing in. 2006. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. just amazing, it's amazing that it's going almost that's, 10 years. That's an investment. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's a long-term vision. And I sure hope it pays off. Three. Triple. Ah. Now, we are joined in the studio by Dr. Nicola Stern. She's from the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Welcome to the studio, Nicola. Good morning. Now, um, you've been working with quite a substantial international team, actually, on some of the, uh, I guess, the early history of Australia and, and what happened around that sort of iconic Lake um, Mungo area. Um, and basically the idea of that, you know, everyone has this sort of vague vision that there was once a, a lake in the middle of Australia. Tell, tell us a bit about that. When, when did that occur? And, you know, what do we know about the period over which there was water there? When did it dry up and so forth? Um, well, you have to picture... Uh, a whole series of lakes, actually. Mm -hmm. um, five really large ones and numerous small ones. Yep. And they are now dry, but in the past when temperature and evaporation were reduced, uh, they held large volumes of water, covered mm -hmm. an area of something like 2,500 square kilometres. Wow. So, and they were fed by a former channel of the Lachlan River, which... so by water which essentially was flowing from the southeastern Australian mm. highlands. Right. Now, now, I mean, it must be amazing for people in your field and so forth to have a, a dried-up lake area to go and explore because it, there, there's got to be just extraordinary amounts of material there to discover and presumably around the lakes as well, you know, where the borders of those lakes were. Yeah, so when the lakes were full of water um, and when the lake levels were fluctuating as well, they built up... Um, uh, a, tran a transverse sort of crescentic dune mm -hmm. around their margin, a bit like um, the four dune on a beach. Right. Um, and when the lake was really brimful of water, it was a sand dune, and when the lake level was low um, and fluctuating, it was a clay dune. So, okay. And it was building up continuously, except when there was sort of an interruption to um, uh, sediment accumulation, and then you had soils forming. And you have traces of people's activities incorporated into that, so you've got this amazing mm. record of um, a fireplace with a scatter of stone tools and right. some food remains um, preserved in a sediment that's telling you something about the environmental conditions that prevailed at the time yeah. that that fire was lit. Now, now, this is one of the things that always fascinated me with archaeology. I, I, I look at a, a rock and it looks like a sharp rock. You, <laughs> you somehow, I don't know how you guys do this, but you somehow determine that this is a fashion tool. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you make that determination? Um, when you deliberately take a rock of the right type mm -hmm. um, and strike it with another 
slightly harder rock. Um, there are some really distinctive features left on, you know, the cobble or the slab that you're working mm-hmm. and on the sliver of sharp edge stone that comes okay. off. Um, I usually spend about a semester <laughs> at least once a year right, teaching yeah. students how to identify the features yeah. on these things um, in order to get information about people's technology in the yeah. past. Um, so, yeah, they do preserve um, distinctive traces on them that right. tell you that they were a tool. Yeah, I, I find it extraordinary, you know, that you can get so much from such small fragments and so forth and make make that into a story. It's it's a, it's it's quite a, an amazing feat to be able to bring it all together in into one story and actually work out what people were doing. Yes, they were cooking here. No, they weren't doing that. You know, they were using these tools. They weren't. I mean, it, that's an extraordinary talent. Well, all we have surviving, in a sense, from the deep, deep past is stone tools, mm. bits and pieces of food remains, um, fireplaces, um, and the sediments that they're buried in. Right. So we have to get as much out of that as we can. Mm. Now, now let, let's talk a bit about the, the lake because my understanding is the recent work that you've been involved with indicates that there was about 250% more water than was previously thought and some of these um, sort of high and low levels were you know, up to five metres different um, between the high and low. I mean, what's, what's um, caused this change in thinking? Um, well, we've been doing some really systematic um, and detailed work in certain parts of the lunette, which is where we started to pick up um, gravels that represented a high beach stand and mm-hmm. one of my geology colleagues once she had, so that's Kat Fitzsimmons from the Max Planck Institute, yeah. so once she'd picked those up, she started tracking them out around the lake um, and she then um, identified beach gravels and then the dune that was associated with those um, beach gravels and then she dated those sediments. So she's able to argue that 24,000 years ago um, we had a, a brief high lake stand, but it was, we estimate, really quite brief in geological terms. Okay. Um, so only lasted about a thousand years. A thousand years. But it was five metres <laughs> higher than the normal lake full level. Yeah. And so we think that, um, well, um, she's argued that this is not related to tectonic activity. Okay. Um, and therefore, the next most obvious explanation is climate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd be looking at really high rainfall in the southeast Australian highlands um, for a brief period prior to the final descent, if you like, into the last glacial maximum, which is mm-hmm. the period of peak cold, peak aridity. Right. Um, of the last 70,000 years. So looking at your publication that came out in PLOS One, I was fascinated by the pictures of um, all the islands um, that these lakes made and, and how that influenced people's, like the culture of the, of the people who, who lived in these areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, that really high lake stand would have joined, for example, Lake Mungo to the lake immediately to the north of it. Um, and... Um, there's a whole series of smaller lake basins out there um, as well which would have expanded the lake area. Mm. Uh, And that would have really impeded people's movement around the landscape. If you're thinking about people moving from A to B across the open plains, um, a lot of those open plains um, immediately to the sort of um, uh, west of Mungo would have been underwater. Um, And a lot of the rocky outcrops where they would have got the raw materials for their stone tools um, Mm. would have been underwater as well Um, so it would have had a significant impact on on people's lives Um, Mm. and yet we know that there are traces of their activities on what would have been an island in the middle of this large lake 
I'm just imagining um, people in, in this, this activity, you know, of people in boats and um, travelling from one side to the other in, in, in a way that maybe we haven't really thought about our Indigenous people um, having having uh, living in that way. Well, we know that people had to have watercraft to get into Australia in the first place. And then the next evidence that we have for the use of watercraft is really use of islands off the mainland within the last 6,000 years. So what this tells us, and we, we really didn't think about... Um, um, use of watercraft in the distant past in the recent past yes but not the distant past on on the inland waterways and inland lakes and so this is probably a fairly good indication that you know absence of evidence is not mm, absence of, <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. um, and so either the technology never disappeared or people were able to revive it really quickly yeah um, at it's 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 interesting to me that um, you know when we talk about a thousand years, it seems a, a long time, but you get quite substantial cultural shifts that would occur over that. I mean, so I mean, I asked the question: Were there fish in this lake? I mean, you know, did it change the way in which the indigenous people in the area? actually relied on the land and so forth in terms of food did it change their practices because then at some stage it dried up um which presumably changed it again do we know much about that we have been doing as a result of our really systematic surveys in the central part of the lunette um we know that in fact we've got more abundant and more diverse traces of people's activities when lake levels were low and fluctuating mm-hmm. and as soon as you stop to think about it and you think that's odd because the popular perception is lake brimful of water abundant aquatic resources right. great place to be but as soon as you really stop to think about the ecology of it um uh aquatic resources would have been scarce so not for, not particularly abundant and they would have been hard to find therefore um when the lake level was brimful mm. of water when you've got low lake levels and those lake levels are being constantly recharged by flood pulses you've got all this detrital carbon coming down the system um fish spawn birds come in mm-hmm. you get a burst of kind of biological right. productivity like you do on on um floodplain wetlands yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's when we find the most diverse archaeological traces. So this mega lake event suggests it would have had a really significant impact on what people were doing. So now that we've identified it, in the next mm. stage of the research will actually be to find out what were they doing yeah. during this time period. Uh, my, my final question really is uh, one that you may not have an answer to, but how much of this have we explored? Because we are talking about a stupendously large area of Australia, not a small region. And the work you do is so fine in terms of detail and so forth. How much of this have we actually explored at this point? Uh, I think what one of the things that um, this tells us is that we have an awful lot to learn mm. in terms of um, landscape change and environmental change or the impact of climate change on yep. the environment um, and, and, and even more to learn about the history um, of human settlement in the area um, because Lake Munger is an icon of mm. Indigenous Australia yep. um, because it preserves some of the you know oldest remains of, of the first Australians. Um, and But a lot of the, you know, we have a reasonable idea, big picture idea of how that landscape changed um, mm. in response to climate change. But we really have um, an on, untold story about the history of people's lives mm. 
Mm. Look, it's extraordinary, and it's it's great to see that this this sort of information coming out, and it must be exciting. You know, archaeology still, I, I think, it's, it's one of those great fields that's still alive and well and thriving, and as technology and so forth improves, it just opens up more and more of what you guys can do. So, um, Nicholas Stern, thanks so much for coming in, and um, good luck with the continued exploration of, of all of this. I think it will really help tell that long-term story. Thank you very much. Dr. Nicholas Stern is from the Department of Archaeology and History at La Trobe University. Three, triple, ah. We have in the studio Dr. David Ackland from Mechanical Engineering at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, David. Thank you. Now, you have uh, just, uh, well, you, you and your team and colleagues at Epworth Freemasons and elsewhere have been working on this amazing, amazing project of essentially replacing a person's jaw joint with something 3D printed. This is extraordinary. Let, let's, let's start with the 3D printing first of all. Um, what sort of materials are we talking about here in terms of 3D printing? This has to be something that's biocompatible, obviously. Mm. Well, the jaw joint is a bit like a ball and socket. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the ball is actually a titanium condylar component. It's about six centimetres long, and it articulates with a, um, a high-density, high-molecular weight polyethylene socket component, which is uh, attached to the skull. Uh, so they were both uh, 3D printed using the most recent um, metal 3D printing technology. Mm. And in terms of, I mean, talk us through the, the 3D printing process. I mean, we're, we're pretty familiar with 2D printing, I think, by, by today. But but is, is this is this molecule by molecule? Or, I mean, how, how does it actually put down this material into a solid object? Well, the machine has a, a small chamber which uh, houses a, a powder, so in this mm-hmm. case titanium powder, and there's a laser that actually um, melts the uh, titanium uh, in layer by layer to mm-hmm. form a 3D part. There's another type of 3D printing called um, laser sintering, in which case the uh, metal particles uh, are actually binded uh, together. Wow. But the, it's the uh, um, titanium, the sort of the laser melting that gives you the really um, high density and good quality titanium yeah. uh, that we use. We use great um, uh, titanium, a biocompatible uh, titanium. I'm glad you did that because if it had been grade four, I would have been disappointed. But what's, what's the difference between these various grades of titanium? Uh, just their composition, yep. um, <clears throat> their material properties, stiffness. Mm. Um, and Australia has a very large titanium reserve. Like it's one of our most valuable ore um, products. Is that correct? Uh, don't quote me on the material properties and the uh, uh, materials, uh, the resources uh, in Australia. But uh, yeah, certainly we use uh, titanium uh, and we use uh, other materials for implantable components like uh, cobalt, chromium, zirconium, uh, a variety of other metals, very important in the biomechanics industry. Maybe, maybe we should do more of this rather than just sending it across the sea in Exactly. I just, I just think it's a great way of um, adding value to a product that maybe we would just dig out of the ground and ship the titanium as ore offshore. Yeah, exactly. This is a way that we can really feed it into our smart manufacturing yeah. industry. It's fantastic. Yeah. Now, in terms of producing a joint for an individual, uh, I mean, I can't even think of where to start there, but presumably the, the person has some deformity which the, the head must be scanned. Or, I mean, how does that work? How do you guys get the template for what you need to put into the individual? Well, we first up designed the implant in three different sizes, mm-hmm. a small, medium and a large. Okay. And we had this patient present with a congenital abnormality, so they were missing a jaw joint. Okay. <clears throat> so what we did was we actually scanned this patient's skull using um, CT or computed tomography 
photography. And we're actually able to use those uh, image stacks to reproduce a three-dimensional uh, geometry, three-dimensional image of this person's skull. And we actually sent that to a, a, a 3D printer, a plastic 3D printer. Now, they're very, okay. very cheap. Yep. You, know, you can buy one for 100 Hundred dollars, so we actually had a three D skull in front of us um, of this of this patient, and that meant that we could very very easily match up the the right sized implant with this person's pathology, hmm. and of course that leads to other uh, possibility other possibilities like uh, customizing components, implantable components for people's uh, pathology or a, a given trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now, you, you must be working closely with the surgeons down at um, Epworth. I mean, did, did they have particular requirements on the implant in terms of oh. their ability to get it in and so forth? Um, Absolutely. We worked with um, Dr. George Dimitroulis, an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, uh, and he actually led the team to design this component. So we um, were under very strict orders to produce a certain uh, component of certain mm-hmm. geometry that was going to conform to the, to the jaw. Uh, and so we, we sort of, at uh, the Mel- University of Melbourne, uh, took on the engineering side uh, under the guidance of the surgeon. Mm. Uh, but, of course, you could imagine um, other surgeons in, in orthopaedics and, and other areas uh, uh, coming up with designs, their own uh, tailored implants for, for certain uh, cases. And now we just have the technology. We can actually <coughs> engineer them, we can test them, uh, and we can fabricate them here in Australia. Now. We're sort of almost out of time, but we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the outcome for this particular patient. Obviously, this has now been surgically implanted. What What is the situation for the individual? Well, a 32-year-old patient, um, uh, his jaw was lopsided uh, mm-hmm. initially, um, having only one sort of jaw yeah. joint on one side. Uh, so it's completely uh, corrected his um, joint symmetry problem. So his, he looks, uh, his face is symmetric. Um, he no longer has pain, uh, uh, has a very wide range of, of jaw motion, um, and cosmetically he's, uh, he's very happy. In fact, he was laughing. He, he initially wanted the, um, the Brad Pitt jawline, um, <laughs> but the surgeon actually gave him his, his natural jawline. Of course, That's he's very right. happy with that. Yeah, I mean, you probably have to replace both sides for the, the Brad Pitt, presumably the whole lot. Yeah, possibly a bit <laughs> of extra work there and as well. Does he get to keep the plastic model of his skull? Yes, I believe he's had... Uh, <laughs> A uh, plastic skull printed for him and um, the implant to uh, put on his mantelpiece. Oh, that's wow. awesome. David, look, that is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, we, we you see this stuff in you know television shows and so forth, but to hear it happening locally here and to have someone have such... It must be a transformational experience for this guy to, to be able to... You know, I can just imagine the, the limitations that he would have had prior to this surgery. Um, congratulations. I mean, quickly, wh- what's your next part that you're going to sort out for someone? Well, uh, we're going to keep improving this implant. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other joints in the body that we'd like to look at, yep. um, the spine and the shoulder. Uh, so we've got a whole lot of ideas. And with this um, 3D printing technology for metal now, we've just got almost endless uh, possibility and capacity to, mm. to create new um, implantable components for the human body, um, working yep. with our teams of surgeons, which are world-class here in Melbourne. Look, it is, is great work. Uh, David Eklund from Mechanical Engineering at the University of Melbourne, congratulations. Keep it up and um, replace as many bits as you can. Thank you. Um, that, geez, that's really uh, extraordinary stuff, extraordinary. We've had a great show today, folks. Um, a big thank you to Dr. Catherine. Thanks for coming in. 
It's been a pleasure. Dr. Crystal, good so to see you again. great to highlight the fantastic research being done here in Melbourne. I know. I'm inspired. I have to say, you know, the New Horizons thing is pretty cool, but it's it's a bit of challenge there from the local people. I have to say, we're doing good, um, folks. We're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It. You've been listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, science is everywhere, especially in Melbourne. And uh, we will have a chat to you again in a week's time. Enjoy your Sunday. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.